see you this morning. It's good to have this opportunity to speak to you. It's good to see quite a few visitors here as I look around this room, and we want you to know that you're our honored guest. We invite you to stick around and to visit with us so that we can get a chance to meet you and to talk with you, get to know you better. But whether you're a member or a visitor, we're glad that you're here, and I'm thankful for this opportunity we have to spend time together in fellowship as Christians and in worshiping God together. I want to begin this morning by reading our text from Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. This analogy might be lost on some people here, but on some it's not going to be. And for those that uh, might not be as familiar with it, we'll try to explain it. Is anyone else here a, a fan of the Marvel movies? Anyone, you can just nod your heads. Yeah, I see some are. I know uh, maybe some aren't. So at least, at least for a few of us, you know, for six or eight of us, this will make sense. And for the under 100 plus, you know, we'll, we'll try to explain it here. Abby and I have seen all of the movies in the MCU. From the time that they began with Iron Man in 2008 until it wrapped up with this big, long, overarching story last year in Endgame, there was this single plot thread running through all of these movies in the background, at least sometimes in the foreground of them, and it involved these mysterious gem-like objects that initially appeared to be disconnected, unrelated to each other, because they appeared in different movies. But over time, we learned that these are related. There are six of these, and they're called the Infinity Stones, and each one of them represents some elemental aspect of existence. Well, in the course of this movies, we find that there's this sinister figure named Thanos who is in pursuit of all these. He wants to acquire them and be able to harness the power that would come from wielding every single one of them. And he lurks in the shadows in most of these films early on, using proxies who are the main villains of each movie to try to acquire them. But in every one of them, they fail, because these are superhero movies, right? The good guys win. And so finally, he grows frustrated with their incompetence, their failures. And so there's a cut scene after the end credits of one of the movies where you see him going and putting on this gauntlet that he's designed to wield all of these, and he says, I'll do it myself. That, I'm suggesting, is essentially what God says in Christ. In the beginning, God created the world, and he ruled over it as its one true king, its rightful Lord. And he called humanity with the task of imaging him, of reflecting his wise and benevolent rule to this world. But humanity rebelled against God's rule to try to usurp his authority for themselves. We want to be our own boss. That's essentially what sin is. 
And so God called Abraham and made a covenant with him and with his descendants. He called Israel to be a people who were distinct and set apart, who would exemplify his rule in the world. They were to be a, a holy people, like God was holy. They were to be a kingdom of priests. They were to be a light to all the nations. But Israel rejected that task of exemplifying God's rule. They decided instead of having God as their king, they wanted to be just like all the nations around them and have a human king. God acquiesced to their request, even though he knew what sort of sorrow and heartbreak that would bring. He tried to call the kings of Israel and of Judah, these human beings, to act as his emissaries to rule the way he would have them to rule, but for those of us who know anything about the long history of the kingdoms of Israel, that met with, uh, at best, some scattered successes. So in the end, the prophets looked forward to a day when God would take charge of things, when God would set things right, when he would establish his reign over his people. In other words, they looked forward to a time when God would say, I'll do it myself, and he would send the Messiah into the world. That was the great prophetic hope of Israel. That's what every faithful Jew was looking for in Jesus' day. And what we find when we open Mark's gospel, he tells us at the outset, it's happened. God's doing that just like he said. But God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts, as Isaiah puts it. The ordinary Jew on the street in the first century had this conception of a Messiah who would come in and who would be a conquering warrior king like David only better and he would overthrow the Romans he would kick them out he would reestablish an independent kingdom of Israel John the Baptist has prepared the way for him here in Mark chapter 1 and he said there's one who's mightier than me one who's stronger than I am who's going to come so at last here in what we've read the the protagonist of our story and not just our story of Mark's gospel but of this whole long story of Israel the big picture story of the Bible he arrives here on the scene he's the strong one he's the Messiah he's the son of God and yet he's not at all what anybody expected he comes not from Judea where all of the Jewish elites are, the establishment is. He comes from Galilee, the West Virginia of Palestine. Everybody looked down on it as a backwater. He comes not merely from Galilee, he comes from Nazareth, a village that was so obscure it's not mentioned in the Talmud, it's not mentioned by Josephus, a little place that was so despised even other Galileans looked down on Nazareth can anything good come out of Nazareth as one resident of Cana once said and he comes not as a, a conquering hero he comes in humility he comes to submit to baptism just like all of those others who went out into the wilderness to see and to hear John this is our introduction to the Messiah. 
And it's also the beginning of God subverting our expectations about who he is and what he'll do. So what do we learn about Jesus from this introduction we have to him here in Mark's gospel? Well, first of all, in his baptism, Jesus is proclaimed to be the Messiah. And more specifically than that, we start to learn already here some indications of what type of Messiah he'll be. We might unpack that by asking why was he baptized in the first place? That's not a question that Mark addresses directly, but it's something that we know from parallel accounts. Even John the Baptist wondered about. I'm the one that needs to be baptized by you, and you're coming to be baptized by me? Well, for one thing, this demonstrates to us that Jesus was completely and totally devoted to submitting to God's will. John's message was for all of the Jewish nation in scope. God's reign, God's kingdom is coming. And so you need to repent to turn to God. You need to be baptized and have your sins forgiven so that you'll be ready for this brand new thing that God is doing. Of course, Jesus had no sin to repent of. But for him, baptism is a symbol, a sign of his love for the Father. It symbolizes the fact that he is completely and totally committed to following the will of God in his life. Think about his words in the Garden of Gethsemane as he knows he's heading for the cross. This is later in Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. The ultimate demonstration of his devotion to following the Father's will is there in going to the cross. But what we know here in his baptism, this is a declaration from the beginning that Jesus is committed to doing the will of God in his life. It shows that he's consecrated to God, he's devoted to God from the very beginning. It also demonstrates to us how the Messiah identifies with his people. Now, what I mean by that, on one level, Jesus is fulfilling the role of a faithful Israelite. Sometimes we forget this, but it's so obvious, maybe that's why we forget it. Jesus is a Jew, and he's doing here what all Jews were called to do in John's day. In contrast to all of those individuals pouring out of Jerusalem and Judea to go and to hear John, here we have this one man, this single solitary figure coming all the way down from Galilee to the wilderness on the other side of the Jordan. And he's not just going out there to see the big show in the wilderness. He's coming in obedience to a summons from God. On an even deeper level than that, Jesus identifies here with all of those people that he came to save. Jesus, as we already said, had no need of forgiveness himself. But his call ultimately is for all of his followers to be baptized too. Later on in Mark's gospel, he's going to give that commission. Here he is taking the lead in that, giving his disciples a firm example to follow. See, Jesus isn't there down front, with John while the invitation song is sung, inviting everyone to come down there and be baptized. 
He's not even up there baptizing John and inviting others to come and to repent. Instead, he's down there in the water with the sinners, with the transgressors, in solidarity with them, of them, and with them in that process. He identified with you and with me, submitting to the Father's will and giving us an example to follow. But what's more emphasized here in Mark's gospel is what the Father has to say about Jesus here. Jesus comes up out of the water, and the text says that immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. That's a much more vivid picture than really comes through in English that's contained in that Greek word. It it means to tear, uh, to rend, to, to split. The Greek word is schizo, and we might recognize that most commonly with our term schizophrenia, a splitting, a tearing of the mind. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that Jesus looked up in the sky and he saw a door ajar away up yonder in space where he could see God. The idea here is almost like a a curtain's been rolled back, and here is God's reality, that thing that we normally don't see, intruding here into our everyday world, what we consider to be reality. The prophets longed for that very thing. In the background of Mark's language here is that text that Tristan read a few moments ago from Isaiah chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your presence. That's what's happening here. God is coming down, revealing himself in Jesus. This is earth-shaking stuff. And as Isaiah says a few verses later, he's acting for those who wait for him. The Father intervenes here to demonstrate his approval of Jesus. And in fact, we have the full presence of God revealed here, the Godhead. The Son is baptized, the Father speaks, and the Spirit of God descends here literally into Jesus in the form of a dove. So in other words, what we have here is a clear picture of Jesus' identity and the fact that he's been empowered here as the Son of God to go and begin his ministry. The voice from heaven here, from the Father, gives us an indication of what this role as Messiah entails, though. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. There are at least two, and quite likely three, allusions to the Old Testament here in this statement. You are my Son. That comes from the second Psalm, verse number 7. This was the song that was sung when a new king was enthroned in Israel. This is the coronation psalm. And in the second psalm, in context, all the kings of the earth have conspired against God and against his anointed one, that is, against his Messiah. But God just laughs at them because, as it says there, he has installed his king, his son. So God effectively here, when he says, you are my son, that announces Jesus as 
this kingly figure, this greater son of David, this Messiah that they were all looking for to rule over the nations. There's also a clear reference here to Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This is the first of the servant songs in Isaiah that will go on for several chapters, and many of us are probably familiar with those texts to some degree. But in those servant songs, it's a little bit mysterious because sometimes the servant appears to be the entire nation of Israel. And then sometimes the servant appears to be a righteous remnant, those faithful ones within Israel, a common theme in the prophets. But ultimately, that servant crystallizes into one figure, a man who does for Israel what they couldn't do for themselves. It climaxes there in Isaiah chapter 53, and that's a passage I know just about all of us are familiar with, where the suffering servant gives his life for the sins of the people. Finally, there's possibly here an allusion to Genesis chapter 22 and verse 2, where Abraham is commanded to take your beloved son, whom you love, Isaac, and to offer him as a sacrifice. So how do we put these statements together? This is that's in the background of what the father says. Is, is Jesus the, the king of Israel, the son of David? Is he the servant of God? Is he the one who's going to be sacrificed? Yes. He's all of those things. That's not what his contemporaries were looking for. He's the messianic king, but he's not at all like what the people expected, which also reflects something in Isaiah chapter 64. You would come down, rend the heavens, that you would act in ways we hadn't looked for. That's what God does in Christ because that king is ultimately the servant, the one who submits perfectly to God's will, the one who ultimately will give his life for his people. This time there's not going to be any ram that's going to be offered in place of him like with Isaac. Instead, he has to walk the way of the cross, the way of that suffering servant. Jesus himself puts all this together in Mark chapter 10. This is maybe the sort of thematic verse of Mark's gospel. But it's in the context of him revealing that he has to die. He makes several predictions of his death. In Mark chapter 10, the disciples still don't get it. They think of Jesus as this king, and they're squabbling about who's going to be his right-hand man in the kingdom. And Jesus says, you're not going to be squabbling after power the way that the kings of the earth do. That's not the way that power is demonstrated in the kingdom of God. Instead, if you want to be great, you need to be a servant. Even as he came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A commissioning by God in Scripture is often followed by a time of testing, and Jesus is no exception to that. Mark connects his baptism directly to it, in fact. In verse number 12, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. 
So we see secondly from this text that Jesus passes the test. This wording here where it says that the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness, that's a strong word. That's the word that's typically used for casting out demons in Mark. But we shouldn't get the wrong idea that somehow Jesus is forced out there against his will. Rather, I think the point is this isn't an accident. He doesn't by chance just happen to go out to the wilderness and encounter the devil there. Instead, this is God's plan. This is God's purpose. The Spirit's urging Jesus on in this task. And again, it's probably not what we'd expect. You think about it coming hard on the heels of his baptism. He's just basically announced himself, and the heavenly voice has shown its approval. This is my son. You, actually addresses Jesus directly in Mark. You are my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. So what we might expect here from our human standpoint is a celebration, some sort of big party here. But instead, Jesus goes even further out into the wilderness. And he goes there with a purpose so that he can be tested by Satan. Now, Mark doesn't give us the details of this temptation the way that Matthew and the way that Luke do, and we won't go into those parallel accounts, but at least here, following his baptism, following this public announcement of him as that stronger one, it's clear enough what's at stake, especially what we know from what that heavenly voice said. This is an attempt to divert Jesus right here at the beginning of his ministry, right here before it even gets started. It's an attempt to try to get him to go his own way rather than walking that way of the cross, that road of the suffering servant that God called him to walk. There's an old story about when the Union Pacific Railroad was being built out west and they came to a large canyon and built this elaborate trestle bridge across it. And one day, in order to test that, when it was basically completed, the builder had a, a train doubled up, more cars, more cargo, double its normal payload. And they drove it out there to the middle of the bridge and they left it sitting out there the entire day. And after a few hours, one of the workers asked him, what are you trying to do, break that bridge? The builder said, no, I'm trying to prove that it won't break. I think that's very much what's going on here with Jesus. That's the idea. Because this isn't the end of the battle with Satan for Jesus. But right here at the outset, it's confirmed that he is the Messiah. He is the one empowered by the Spirit of God. He's going to defeat Satan. He will bring salvation to his people. And that comes through even more clearly when we think about this number here, 40 days and the location there in the wilderness. David Smith and I were talking this week about studying the Bible, and one of the things he said is that these numbers that you see come up a lot, those are important. 47, you see those things like that and others, you might ask yourself what's trying to be communicated. And that's exactly right. When we see 40 here, what do we think of? Well, we might think of the 40 days that Moses spent on Mount Sinai getting the law. We might think of the 40 days that Elijah spent at Mount Horeb. And in fact, if we want to connect it to what the voice says there, at Jesus' transfiguration, he's going to appear between Moses and Elijah, and that voice is going to speak again. But this time he's going to say, hear him, 
Hear Jesus. In other words, he's the greater lawgiver than Moses, and he's the superior prophet to Elijah. But I think here with 40 in the context of the wilderness, what this should call to our minds more than anything else is the 40 years that Israel spent wandering. That was a time of testing for them, just like it is here for Jesus. And they repeatedly failed that test through disobedience, through unbelief, through their faithlessness. But Jesus succeeds where they fail. Here he is again, that ideal Israelite. As the faithful servant, he does what God's people in the past couldn't do. And now he's ready to begin his ministry proper. We see third and finally, Jesus goes and he preaches the gospel. Verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. John the Baptist's role as the, the forerunner is complete. Jesus is ready, the stronger one, to go out and to preach the gospel. And what we have here is obviously intended to be a, a summary of his preaching and his teaching there. The times fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Interestingly, we never find another statement, again, quite like this throughout all the rest of Mark. And I think that's mostly because it takes reading through the entire rest of the story to really understand what this means. The good news is that the kingdom of God, God's reign, God's rule has arrived. Jesus says that it's at hand. That means that it's not only in the future, but that word in the Greek conveys the idea that, it, that it's so close, it's like it's breaking in now. It's not only in the future, but in some sense it's here in the present. You can reach out and almost touch it. You can almost taste it. It's so close. It's even now breaking into the world. In other words, God has said, I'll do it myself. God breaks into the world here with his reign, his rule in Jesus. Jesus is the deliverer they've been waiting for. Jesus is the faithful one. He's the true Israelite, the servant who submits to God. But he brings deliverance in a very unexpected way. Of course, it takes the rest of Mark's gospel to really understand that, but we've already seen a glimpse of it here right at the beginning. The good news is that in Jesus of Nazareth, God has come to be with his people. He's torn open the heavens, he's come down. He's shaken the mountains. He's demonstrated his power, but it's a very different sort of power than Jesus' contemporaries were looking for, a very different sort of power than what we think of as power in our modern world. It's the power of self-emptying, self-denying, sacrificial love that ultimately leads to the cross. It's no coincidence that this word here, to rend or to tear, Jesus saw the heavens torn open. That's used only one other time in Mark's gospel. And it's when the curtain in the temple is torn in two. And just like that heavenly voice declares here at the outset, 
A centurion says, truly this man was the son of God. Mark chapter 15, verses 38 and 39. Access to God comes now not through the temple, but through Jesus Christ, and that's because of his death there on the cross. It's because Jesus came to be with us. See, our God isn't distant and removed from us. And I think this is so important for us to keep in mind. Ancient peoples believed that. The Epicureans thought that the gods didn't really care about anything going on down here. Our modern day world thinks that too. Even for those who believe in God, they think of him as sort of a deistic God. He's distant. He created the world and now he's off somewhere, not really concerned. Our God instead became flesh in Jesus. He burst on the scene here, fully formed in Mark's gospel, but think about this, for 30-ish years, give or take, he lived an ordinary life, just like you and me. He walked, he talked, he ate, he slept, he woke up with morning breath, he would have brushed his teeth if they did that sort of thing back then. He lived an ordinary human life just the way that we do. And more importantly than those mundane things, that means that he knows and understands every facet of human experience. You ever feel like your friends have left you, let you down? Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by a friend, to have them turn his back on him. Jesus knows what it's like to stand beside the grave of a loved one and to grieve, even to weep openly, unashamed. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. You think that you struggle with temptation and that makes you weak? Well, no. Temptation doesn't make you weak. It makes you human. We ought not to give in to temptation, but we see here that Jesus himself was tempted before he ever preached a sermon, before he ever healed a single person, before he ever made a single disciple. He was taken aside and tested by Satan. And all of this means that as the Hebrews writer puts it, chapter 4 and verse 15, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows what we've gone through. He was tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows Jesus cares. And because of that, as Hebrews continues, let's have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace, to find mercy and grace to help us in time of need. The reverse of that is that Jesus became like us so that we might become like him. The Messiah represents his people. And that cuts both ways. On the one hand, we're baptized because he was baptized. We walk in the way that he trod first and that he laid out for us. But it also means that the things that are true of him are true of us when we become part of his people too. Have you ever considered one aspect of what it means, Paul puts it this way in Galatians, that when we're baptized into Christ, we put on Christ, we've been clothed with him? It means that in a sense, when God looks at us, 
He sees Jesus. At our baptism, in a real sense, just like at his, even if we didn't see it this way, the curtain of the heavens is rolled open. And God intruded into our reality. We received the Spirit too. And when God looks at you, if you're in Christ, he says, you are my dear, dear child. I am delighted in you. He says that at our baptism. And he says that every day thereafter just as long as we walk in the light. What an awesome God we serve. How can we respond in any other way than to believe in this great good news, to turn to him in repentance and to be baptized, to have our sins washed away and to be added to his people, to identify with the Lord who identified with us. If you haven't done that, I want to urge you to do it today. And if you have done that, you are a Christian, but at some point you've stumbled and you need to repent in order to be back in that right relationship with him. It's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing.